0: Hi everyone, my name is Mark, if we haven't met before. Uh, My main role here at Trinity Bay is looking after the Young Adult Service, which meets on Sunday evenings at 6pm, just in the community hall behind us there. It's great to be with you this morning as we celebrate this very significant day in the church year. If you're new or visiting today, it's great to have you here with us as we look at Luke's account of Jesus' death and why it matters so much for us today. How about I pray before we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this part of your word. Uh, We just pray that as we reflect on what happened with Jesus' death, um, that the significance of it wouldn't wash over us, but that we'd really be taking this to heart, um, that we'd be really coming to understand what happened that day, the significance of it, and how it matters so much to us. We pray that we'd be coming away from here, each one of us with a bigger picture of who you are and a a greater thankfulness for what you've done for us. Amen. Well, everyone knows that the cross is an important symbol of Christianity, Um, but what does it mean to you personally? Perhaps you'd say it's very important to you. Perhaps you're here today just to keep a family member happy or because it seems like the right thing to do on Good Friday, and you'd be honest and say that, the cross probably doesn't really make that much difference in your day-to-day life. Perhaps you're fairly new to church or you're going through a bit of a difficult time and you're working out what exactly the cross means for you. Well, I think if we truly understand this passage that we've just read, we'll see that the cross is extremely important. Um, In fact, it shapes our very identity. I wonder what it is that defines you what would you say is the thing that is most central to your identity you know if you were to explain yourself in one sentence what would what would it be that would feature in that sentence uh, would it be your your job maybe your appearance some sort of ability that you have i wonder what it would be uh, there's a scene in the movie anger management where the main character dave goes to his first anger management class the the doctor says to him dave Tell us about yourself. Who are you? And so Dave responds in a typically slow Adam Sandler voice. Well, I'm, I'm an executive assistant for a, a major pet products company. And the doctor interrupts him and says, Dave, I don't want to know what you do for a job. I want to know who you are. And so Dave says, oh, all right. Well, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I'd I like playing tennis on occasion. And the doctor interrupts him again and says, no, Dave, not your hobbies. I just want to know who you are. Dave's getting a bit confused by this point. He says, well, I'm I'm a nice, easygoing man. I might be a little bit indecisive at times. The doctor says, Dave, you're describing your personality. I just want to know who you are. Now, the whole point of that was just so that the doctor could make Dave get angry, but (laughs) which he was successful in. uh, But there's something there for us. The cross is the missing piece in this movie scene. It defines who we are more than our hobbies, our job, our gender, our family, our football team, or anything that we might use to define ourselves. So let's come to this passage. What we see here is an unspeakable injustice. Jesus, who has been betrayed, arrested, denied by his close friend, mocked, beaten, interrogated, is now brought before Pilate, the Roman governor. Jesus, who throughout what Luke has recorded in this book, has healed the sick, he's healed the paralysed, He's cast out demons, raised the dead, fed multitudes of people, preached forgiveness of sins and the good news of the kingdom of God. This Jesus now stands accused. And the accusations that the Jews present against him in verse 2 and verse 5 of chapter 23 are all either false or misleading twists on what Jesus had said and done during his teaching. Pilate even recognises this, and he recognises there's no basis for the charges against Jesus, that he's done nothing deserving of death. And King Herod comes to the same conclusion. But eventually the demands of the crowd prevail. Jesus is condemned to death. Barabbas, a murderer, walks free. The king of the Jews dies in great agony mocked by those around him Now the cross only truly makes sense if we grasp two things that's sin and grace If we don't understand them then the cross will never be anything more than a good moral teacher being unfairly executed in the prime of his life 2000 years ago We we'll start with sin Now, Barabbas is the silent character in this story. We don't know much about him, just that he was a murderer, he'd been responsible for a rebellion. But despite being deserving of death under the laws of that time, Barabbas walks free because Jesus dies. Jesus died so that the guilty might go free. That was the purpose of his death, It's why he journeyed to Jerusalem. It's why he told his disciples that he must be killed. Jesus had to die so that the guilty might go free. But not simply so that Barabbas might go free, he died so that we might go free. Jesus came to deal with the biggest problem in the world human sin. Now, often when we we think of the word sin, we take it to mean individual things that we do wrong, which is true, but it's it's more than that. Sin describes the broken relationship with God that we all have. It's when we want to be ruler of our own life, to live life our way instead of God's, thinking that we know better. The things that we do wrong are symptoms, but sin is the disease itself. We see the effects of sin both in our own hearts and all around us in the world today. It's at the heart of our broken relationships, the evil that we see in the world, the dissatisfaction that we feel at the state of the world, and the guilt that we feel for the things that we know we've done wrong. Sin explains so much of what we see and experience in the world today. People choose their way instead of God's. And consequences happen because God created us to follow him. It's like if you buy a car and completely ignore all of the manufacturer's instructions on it. You know, you fill it up with the wrong petrol, you never change the oil, you let the tires go flat. Things are going to go pear-shaped really quickly. this is the problem that Jesus came to solve. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, which I think is printed on the leaflets there, we read this. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. An innocent man died for the guilty. And understanding the cross means understanding that something needs to be done to take the punishment that I deserve so that I could come into right relationship with God. It means understanding that I am Barabbas in this story. It's offensive, but it makes sense of the world around us. It makes sense of what we know in our own hearts. It makes sense of why Jesus had to die on the cross. Understanding sin means knowing something incredible needed to be done to save us. And understanding grace means knowing that God did something incredible. Grace means something we don't deserve. And it's what we see in the the 1 Peter verse that we just read. Jesus suffered the righteous, him, for the unrighteous, us, to bring us to God. God loved us enough to pay the price for the things that we've done wrong with his own son's blood. The nature of grace is made clear in Jesus' encounter with the two criminals who are on the cross. Jesus is on the cross, there's two criminals, there's a criminal being crucified, either side of him. One of them hurls abuse at Jesus. The other one says to Jesus, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's actually the only person in this whole section who refers to Jesus by name. And Jesus answers him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this criminal wasn't bringing a lot of good deeds to the table. He knew he'd lived a shocking life. He knew that the only way into God's kingdom was through Jesus. How do you get saved? If you believe in there being a heaven that you can go to when you die, how do you know that you'll end up there? Is it a case of your good deeds outbalancing your your bad deeds on the divine scales at the end? Do enough good deeds get you into heaven? Because if that's the case, it seems to really fly in the face of what this passage says. This second criminal was in a hopeless position, both physically and spiritually. The message of grace is that good deeds don't get you into heaven. Because even the good things that we do come from a heart that is rebellious against God. We're saved only by putting our trust in Jesus' death, covering our sins, and living by faith in Him. I was at a friend's wedding a couple of years ago. Alicia and I were dating at the time, I've got permission to tell the story that follows, by the way, just in case anyone wonders, and the time for the bouquet toss came. So the, the idea of the bouquet toss at weddings is that the bride, towards the end of the reception, will toss her bouquet and all of the unmarried women there, there at the wedding will jostle and try and catch the bouquet and the woman who catches the bouquet is the next one who's going to get married. Make of that what you will. <laughs> Anyway, Alicia decided to go for the catch, and long story short, there's a reason that AFL players don't wear long dresses and high heels. She got nowhere near the bouquet, took a tumble, landed on the piano that was behind where all the action was happening, and would have fallen over completely if another girl hadn't picked her up and helped her at the last minute. wasn't her finest moment. She's she's had many better moments. Uh, So you can guarantee that when I proposed to her the next week, She wasn't thinking to herself that it was her bouquet-catching ability that had convinced me about that. We're saved by trusting in God's love, not our performance. That's grace. God sent his son to take the punishment for the things that we've done wrong and to bring us into right relationship with him. It's all about what God did for us, not what we do for him. Tim Keller, a minister in America, puts it really well. He says this, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the message of sin and grace at the cross. That is why the cross shapes our identity more than anything else ever could There were two criminals dying either side of Jesus, both of them in a hopeless position. One of them turned to Jesus, one of them didn't. The question is, which criminal are you? Whether or not we realise it, everyone is one of these criminals, whether we've lived a pretty good life or whether we've done a lot that we're ashamed of, We all have hearts that lead us away from God. We all rebel against God's rule in our lives. We're all in a position that's hopeless without Jesus. But we all can be saved. Perhaps you'd identify most with the first criminal here. There's nothing Jesus offers you that you want or need. Now, at the end of the day, that's a choice that only you can make. But I'd ask you to consider two things as you leave here today. Firstly, have you given Jesus a chance? Have you investigated the Bible enough to be totally satisfied that you truly have no need for Jesus? And secondly, does this idea of sin make some sense of what you see and experience in the world? You might have seen our Easter flyers going around with, before I die, I want to dot, 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 written on them. If you're anything like me, I'm sure there's lots of things that you'd love to do before you die. Places you'd love to go, things you'd like to see, experience, or do. But before you die, would you like to be sure of where you're going after you die? What will happen to you? Better still, would you like to be certain that you've got something to look forward to and not to fear when you die. I don't mean just an unfounded optimism that it'll all be okay, I'll go to a better place. The Bible offers so much more than that. I'd encourage you to keep exploring Jesus. And please come back here on Sunday to hear the second half of the Easter story and why we can have certainty that there is something to look forward to after we die. Perhaps you realise that you've been living as that first criminal, but you think that the second criminal might be the one who's actually on the money. That Jesus does offer something that I need. If that's you, then please come and have a chat to me, to Colin, to whoever's invited you along here today, whoever you feel most comfortable talking to. And we'd love to help you to think through that a bit more. We have a course running throughout the month of May. Colin mentioned it just earlier. It's called Life. And we'd love to have you to come along. It's a chance to, to learn about who Jesus is, what it means to follow him, why it makes sense to follow him, and just a chance to ask as many questions as you want. Perhaps you're the second criminal. You've given your life over to Jesus, but it's not always easy. Not always a smooth journey. There are steps forwards and backwards as we go through struggles and as we deal with sin in our lives. As we reflect on this passage, I hope you can see the importance of having an identity that is correctly shaped by the cross. And that means having the right balance in our understanding of these two things, sin and grace. And there are dangers, I think, if we get the balance skewed between those two things. What might happen if we, don't, if we don't have the balance right for sin, if we don't properly understand sin as part of our identity? Well, there are a couple of dangers I can think of. The first one is that we can become proud. If sin isn't part of our identity, then it allows room for pride to sneak in. The less mindful we are of the ways that we do wrong to God and other people, The more likely it is that we're going to think too highly of ourselves. So, how does the cross help with that? Well, true humility is found at the cross. A guy called John Stott explained it this way He says, Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering. Your debt I am paying. Your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. If that's what we're constantly reflecting on, then there's not a lot of room for pride to sneak in. Another danger, if we don't have the right balance in our understanding of sin, is that it will gradually become acceptable in our lives. Sure, we're not going to go out and commit crimes or anything like that, but we'll allow other things to creep in. Minor sins, gossip, a few questionable things on the tax return, pirated music, knowing that it's wrong, but being able to justify it in our own minds. And the Christian life, in that sense, it becomes a bit like a diet, really. And sin is like a cheat meal that we allow ourselves, allow ourselves in there every now and then. At the cross, we see what it took to pay for our sins. None of us are going to be able to completely stop sinning in this lifetime. But what we can't do is allow it to become acceptable in our minds. There's no such thing as minor, trivial sin. So those are a couple of the dangers. If we have a a wrong understanding of sin or an unbalanced understanding of sin, what if our understanding of grace is unbalanced? Well, for one thing, we'll we'll be burdened by guilt at the things that we've done wrong because our focus will be completely on the things that we've done wrong and not on the fact that God still loved us enough to save us. Now, guilt, it isn't totally a bad thing. I was watching a YouTube video the other day about how pain works in the human body. So if I was to put my hands, for whatever reason, if I was to put my hand on a hot frying pan, the body would quickly recognise that, no, that's way too hot a temperature on my hand. It would send a message to the brain. The brain would recognise that and think, no, that's not good. Make, make the hand feel pain, and so my hand would feel pain, and so my hand would move away quickly to stop myself from getting too badly burnt. And I think guilt's a bit like that. It helps us to acknowledge what we've done wrong and drives us towards the right response. And the right response to the things that we've done wrong against God is to confess them to him, to say that we've done wrong and to repent. That is to turn away from the things that we've done wrong and to commit with God's help to avoiding that in the future. And to trust that because of God's grace, Jesus' death on the cross was enough to take all the punishment for the things that I've done wrong. And once we've given it over to God, there's no need to be weighed down with guilt before him. That's a great relief. Another danger is that we'll try to earn a right standing with God rather than relying on Jesus for that. If we're not certain that being saved comes only through God's grace, then we'll try to do the heavy lifting ourselves. And that's always going to leave us with feelings of doubt. Have I done enough to be saved? And that's the wrong question to ask because Jesus has done enough for me to be saved. The real question is, have I put my trust in him? Am I certain that When I confess my sins to him, that I'm forgiven completely? Am I certain that there's no amount of sin too much for Jesus' death to cover? Am I certain that there'll be a day when Jesus returns to make things right? When I'll be able to stand in God's presence with everything that I've done wrong, paid in full by Jesus' blood? There's a lot in the passages that we've just had read and I haven't covered everything in the passages. There's a lot of great stuff in there though. I've, so if there's any questions that you have on anything else, I'd love to chat to you about it and to help you think through this a bit more. Um, what I'd love you to come away understanding from this passage though is that we're more simple than we could ever believe but we're more loved than we could ever hope. And that's the message of the cross. When Jesus comes again to make things right, if we've put our trust in him, we'll be permanently washed clean from sin. We'll be sinful all of our lives on earth, but we'll be loved by God forever and ever in heaven. Grace wins over sin. Beneath the cross is where we find our identity. And I hope and pray that that's the identity that we all see ourselves having each and every day. How about I pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the cross. Um, none of us will ever be able to fully comprehend in this lifetime just, um, just how sinful we are or just how loved we are by you. Um, we're never going to be able to fully understand the depth of what happened that day when Jesus laid down his life for us. And we just pray that we would be able to reflect on it more and more and that you'd be helping us all to have an identity that is deeply rooted in what happened that day, that we'd understand our sin, but that so much more we would delight in the grace that you've shown us through Jesus. And we pray that um, for all the things that we could shape our identity and our self-worth on, that each and every day we might be able to reflect on how loved we are by you, that it might be the cross that really shapes the way that we think about you and that we think about ourselves. And please help us to keep that in mind and help us to live lives that are shaped by what you've done for us through Jesus. Amen.